This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Give them a gift they'll never forget because they'll still have it years later. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age. Like their iconic full zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. Because a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. So be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Code GRATEFULAG23. Before we start, a warning. Today's episode contains strong language, discussions about suicide, and descriptions of violence in war that some listeners might find distressing. Yesterday, in part one. You would live in a pretty perpetual state of stress. You wouldn't have any sense of ground gained. You wouldn't have any sense of winning. None. We heard about the traumas endured by the two rifles in Afghanistan in the summer of 2009. I just remember the IED going off and youngie, and I just thought, oh, fuck, here we go. Who was injured? Who was dead? Dust ever, there's noise everywhere. I can still remember the last post was played, and we were lucky because we had the Bugle Major, and Bugle Major Bud could play the last post like nobody else. Now, with the war lost, the rifles are grappling with a different kind of trauma at home. They've now got a very acute problem of suicide. The regiment lost 55 soldiers killed in Afghanistan. At least 22 former riflemen and officers have taken their own lives. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the second of a two-part investigation from The Times foreign correspondent Anthony Lloyd. The hidden cost of the Afghan war. Part two. Coming home. Yesterday, you told us about two rifles, the battalion in the army that suffered the worst losses during the war in Afghanistan, and how for many of its members, you know, coming home was as difficult as the war, especially now that after August, the, you know, the war has been lost, Afghanistan, the campaign is over. Tell me about how some of those veterans are now. I know certainly some have PTSD. Tell me about some of their experiences of it. I mean, starting with the medic, Caroline Bull. When you meet Caroline, you're like, yeah, you would have been really tough in war. Operating at a certain level, I know is good for me. You know, the, the blood, guts and gore was never, never a trigger for me. You would have been extremely competent, extremely focused and unlikely, possibly, to get PTSD. But it, it doesn't work like that. You can't actually tell who's going to get it or not. Here's the thing. Caroline left the army shortly after coming back from Sanguine and lived a life 
yet occasionally troubled by little niggling recalls from Sanguine, but had a very successful career until BAM. It did just mount up and suddenly you just uh, unable to function as a normal human being. Um, and I woke up one, one Friday morning and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And that was just getting up for work, like literally just getting up. She couldn't see beyond the end of the day. Something had triggered her, which suddenly threw her back. And this onset very suddenly and several years later. You, you're, you see yourself as a strong, kind of independent person. You kind of don't really let it come to the surface, but eventually it's going to get you. Um, and it did. <laughs> so she would get you know, hammering heart, feelings of nausea, feelings of panic, extreme emotions. I just couldn't see past it at all. So, and I think deep down I knew what it was. I knew there was a lot of stuff I hadn't dealt with. So, yeah, I, I, my, body, my body just stopped. And my mind stopped with it. There were times when I didn't want to, want to go to sleep and not wake up. I'd never idealised, um, you know, suicide as a, as a thing. Um, but I can see how if you don't feel like there's any, anything else to help you, then I can see how easy it is. And I had a few, few years off, basically. Not everyone gets the treatment they need for combat PTSD. But Caroline Ball was lucky. She did. I don't feel limited now at all. I feel, if anything, empowered to do things that I actually, you know, a couple of years ago didn't think I'd, I'd be able to do. And that includes training as a paramedic. A lot of people don't understand this. They think that you've been traumatised. How can you possibly put yourself in, a, in another position? But actually, my problem was being in a, in a, in a country that was full of IEDs and and people shooting. You know, being on a, an ambulance in, in London, is a, it gives you a buzz, it gives you a buzz back. Most people think they know what PTSD is or have some knowledge of it. But, you know, you've been speaking to so many experts in the field. What have you learned that you didn't know? I think a lot of people think of PTSD with the kind of Hollywood version of flashbacks, like video sequences kind of playing through one's mind. It can involve that, but more commonly it doesn't. More commonly it's emotional replay or deeply intrusive thoughts. There is still disagreement around PTSD's origins and some treatment therapies interpret the condition more in terms of an injurious trauma that's stored in the body rather than in the mind. But by and large, most mental health specialists regard PTSD as a psychological disorder. And it comes about, as it's been explained to me, it comes about through the brain essentially glitching during a moment of extreme trauma and failing to lay that moment down as a memory. So it floats around instead of being filed correctly as a memory, it floats around like some sort of I don't know, a bit of space junk and gets triggered by moments of suggestive recall. It gets triggered by a subsequent event or sight or feeling that 
reintroduces the event as part of the present rather than as a memory of the past. Tell me about some of the other people you spoke to. I mean, for example, Ed Lysett. Ed Lysett, 40, uh, was in the army for four years, 2008 to 2012. And that was four rifles? Yeah. Ed Lysett, he was an officer. He enjoyed the army, he was a good soldier. But he described to me one particular patrol that he had been on where he led the patrol out, uh, an IED had gone off, they were trying to clear a route to get to a helicopter to get the casualties evacuated. So I had to get the team out, and my way to do that was to clear either side of the alleyway, clear those compounds with grenades. They were taking a lot of fire. Ed Lysett ordered his men start grenading the compounds around them, and they were taking fire from the compounds. They did so. As we pushed down that alleyway, yeah, the guys got airlifted out. Hugely challenging situation, which ultimately he got his men out of and got his wounded evacuated from. Then what happens is you get a crowd of about 200 angry Afghans pitch up same day, just having got back at the patrol base. So I'm in the guard tower and I see this group, there's about 200, and they're carrying these beds, wrapped up bodies, one on each bed. One is the body of an elderly woman, on one there is the body of a little girl, about six or seven years old, who have been killed by British grenades. Oh. And the families came to the back gate... The families of the dead want to speak to the British commander, the British commander's Ed. So he allows the immediate family members of the two dead in and speaks for three hours to the son of the elderly woman that the Brits had killed and the father of the little girl that the Brits had killed. And Ed just fronts up with that. He's saying, I am the one responsible for taking the life of a man's child. I'm sat with these two families and... Uh, I, it's something, I don't know, was it, I don't know, something in the, I think, dealing with the father of the little girl, something, I, yeah. That event seems to have lodged itself very firmly in my psyche somewhere. It's very interesting, a lot of these veterans are far more honest and frank with me than many serving officers still are who skirt around the issue of civilian harm and, and all the rest of it. Anyway, by and large, the veterans are pretty frank about it. But here's the thing with Ed. Like Caroline, Ed had left the army and pursued a very successful career in you know the kind of security world. He'd worked in Yemen, in Africa and in Afghanistan until he had a panic attack several years after leaving Afghanistan, which then precipitated PTSD, two attempts on his life. The, the things I'm experiencing are bodily. I'm nauseous all the time. I think because of these uh, stress hormones or I think that kind of buzzing rage like I've not felt it before. It's difficult to find sort of some rest and some sort of calm. Every day is worse than the worst day before this happened. That might sound dramatic, but like the last four years, the numbers of days of joy, I can count on two hands. He lived for a time in a shelter for former soldiers in London. He lived on Dartmoor among travellers, among whom, incidentally, Afghan veterans are a fairly regular presence. 
Ed's attempt to have treatment for PTSD here hadn't worked out. The NHS used two principal treatment types for PTSD amongst veterans. There's CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, which is what Ed had. In a, in a, in a, let me explain it as a layman. It's basically getting an individual to relive moments of acute trauma while getting them to follow with their eyes the, the passage of a laser light. Uh, or sometimes you get them to hold these uh, kind of vibrating electrical paddles too. No one can quite explain exactly why it works, but it, it does work for some people. It didn't work for Ed. It drove him absolutely wild. My sessions were, were really fucking unpleasant. They don't, most of them would end with me throwing down these vibrating paddles and just be like, I can't do, I can't fucking do, and I'm going to, like, sometimes coming out, I just wanted to tear the place up. Ed's PTSD had not been cured, that's for sure. PTSD can be cured, but Ed's hadn't been. Now, I know what a psychiatrist would say. They would say that's a clear example of grievous moral injury, which would have compounded post-traumatic stress disorder. That was Ed. It said in several years later. Caroline of Disgust said in several years later. Paul Jacobs was different. This guy had been a hugely respected, tough young fighter in two rifles. The next thing, he's a blinded civilian with PTSD who needs help crossing the road. Unfortunately, I'm vulnerable and I do need assistance. And I have to accept that I may be a big six foot two, big brawly man with all the mouth and all the get up and go, but I can only get up and go if I've got the assistance to get across the road because I am blind and I have to face this fact. In my head, I'm still me, but physically I'm not. And so Paul has the immediate difficulty of severance from the army. Paul Jacobs has been in care before he got in the army. He, he described the army as a place of safety and security for the first time in his life. And he said the army taught him to love. He's hugely respected while in the army. That's quite something. That's quite, a, quite, quite a thing. The army taught me to quite love. Quite unexpected too. As yeah, a, as it was very unexpected. Paul Jacobs last year in the run-up to the fall of Kabul was having a very difficult time in the wake of three suicides of uh, two rifles veterans. Paul said he was desperate at one point last year, reached out to uh, a mental health organisation, begged for help because of COVID restrictions. They couldn't give him a meeting and then finally they did and they said, well, we can set up a counsellor to meet you in the back of an Asda store. It just doesn't sound inviting from the offset, does it? Do you know what I mean? I shop at Tesco's. Since you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm struggling with my head. And now you want me to go through an Asda's, sit in a room with some tosser who's probably never been seen or done, had any experience like that. You've got to remember, I've been blind 12 years. I mean, that does sound like a very strange place to hold a, a counselling session. Yeah. Technically, there's no shortage of organisations who are around to help veterans. I can't remember how many thousand military charities there are in the UK at the moment, but the annual income for the total is something like a billion, billion pounds a year, and many of them profess to, to be able to help veterans with mental health. The problem is for veterans, accessing proper mental health care. The NHS, for example, in, in combination with the MOD, rolled out something called Op Courage last year, specifically designed for ex-servicemen, but from speaking to most veterans I spoke to, they didn't want to speak to an NHS doctor or nurse about mm. their war experiences. 
The soldiers I spoke to felt very reluctant to speak to a civilian about their war experiences, war experiences which might involve killing or extremely complicated moral challenge. Those that did, for example, I remember Caroline Bull described her first sessions with a counsellor, an NHS counsellor, lasting just two sessions before the NHS counsellor said, sorry, I can't, I'm not qualified to deal with your level of PTSD. Coming up, the events that shocked the army into action and how veterans are helping each other. But first... I'm Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent of The Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to report on what's going on in the corridors of power in Whitehall and Westminster. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today visit times.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. The archetype of the wandering soldier bereft of his clan after war is one which has been written about for thousands of years. Odysseus wandered for 10 years with PTSD symptoms on his way trying to get home after the Trojan War. Then you've got the kind of Ronin, the the masterless samurai who wander as well as outcasts. You know, Shakespeare writes about PTSD. Hotspur undoubtedly has PTSD. Then in, you know, more modern times, we've got... I mean, that's so interesting. I hadn't really thought of the, the historical examples. Oh, yeah. PTSD is nothing new. It's been around. It, it changes slightly through cultural experience, through wars. And our current understanding of PTSD really began in the First World War, when I think it was Dr. Charles May wrote about case number one in the Lancet. Case number one was a young British infantryman who was brought to him who suffered what Meyer called, coined the term shell shock. He'd been exposed to extensive shell fire and machine gunning. And he had his symptoms on the one hand were largely physical, was trembling and twitching. Shell shock incapacitated thousands of soldiers in the First World War. By the Second World War, it was called battle fatigue. It was still called battle fatigue when the Americans went to Vietnam. But there it became post-traumatic stress disorder. 
I think a lot of people listening might say, well, hey, there's nothing new here. Some soldiers go to war and come back with PTSD. But I think there is. I think there's a lot here. If you plug in soldier suicide into Google, you suddenly become aware of just the regularity with which former soldiers who served in Afghanistan and Iraq are taking their lives. The army's really alarmed by the suicide rate it's got. Now, first, first thing is, it's aware that it doesn't know how many veterans are killing themselves. Unlike the Americans, the Canadians or the Australians, our primary allies in wars since 2001, a study in America done last year found that since 9-11, over 30,000 serving personnel and veterans had taken their own lives, as opposed to just over 7,000 who had actually been killed on operations. The British authorities don't keep a record of how many former soldiers take their own lives. If someone takes their own life or dies by suicide in the UK, there will not, in the coroner's report, be a reference to whether or not they're in the army. So the full scale of the problem in the UK is not really known. In yesterday's episode, we heard about the events of the 10th of July 2009 in Sangin, Afghanistan. Ten soldiers were killed and another ten wounded as a daisy chain of IEDs triggered a succession of blasts. The worst loss for the British Army during the entire Afghan campaign in a single incident. The effect of that day, of those blasts, among others, on the mental health of one young rifleman recently prompted calls for the army to fix its care of soldiers with PTSD. So Andrew Francis, I didn't meet because Andrew Francis, I would have loved to have met, but he took his life last year. At the time, 2009, he was an 18-year-old rifleman. He was at a different location, but he was a radio operator. So he would have heard the frantic shouts and cries and screaming over his headset, possibly the sound of the IDs going off. Now, he was a desperately keen soldier. He had experienced a form of moral injury in that he had been involved in a firefight and believed that he had killed an Afghan teenager who may not have had a gun. Anthony spoke to Andrew Francis's mother, Sharon Garton. He was just really, really upset about it, that he'd taken somebody else's life. Um, it, very difficult for him to come to terms with. He was less than 24 when he had been through multiple traumatic experiences in war involving the death of friends. He kept saying, why should I be happy if they can't be happy, meaning the people that he'd lost? And I tried to say to him that, you know, they would want you to be happy, they would want you to live their life for them. And he's just shaking his head and he just didn't agree with that at all. He leaves the army when he's 25, not on his terms. He's been medically downgraded. He injured his back. He's already been diagnosed with PTSD, and yet the army lets him go. It doesn't arrange any follow-on treatment with the NHS, nor does it treat him beyond a couple of cursory counselling sessions while he's in the army. Wow. And then last year, he's found dead in a caravan. He's taken his own life, hanged himself, with a rifle's flag wrapped around his shoulders. I think he's had flashbacks. Something's triggered that. And he's gone into, I don't know, maybe arguing with himself in his mind or 
and it, it's just been a case I can't do this anymore. And that that's the only that's the only logic I can come up with. Do you feel then, Chan, that it was your son took his life as a direct consequence of that two thousand and nine tour? Yes. I believe it's due to PTSD yeah, from that from that tour, without a doubt. So you see Andrew very much as a casualty of the Hellman campaign? Yes, definitely. Sharon Garton, she says that her son loved the army, but that you cannot as an organisation pick up young men or women, train them to be soldiers, send them off to war, and then just throw them away at the end of it. The thing is, the army, they strip them back, they build them back up. They don't show emotion and they have to carry on. Not to ask for help, not to show it. For me, there should be regular counselling. Not if you want it, mandatory. They've got images in the head that's going to affect them for the rest of their life. So there should be something available to them 24-7 by the government, not charities. We're not talking a handful of people. We're talking thousands. I know it's improved over the last few years, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. Stung by criticism, the British government is moving rather slowly on this and coroners now by 2023 we think, will actually assess who, in the event they've taken their own life or, or died by misadventure, was a veteran of Afghanistan or Iraq or, or had ever been in the army. Uh, they will start to do that by 2023. And um, it's astonishing they haven't done that up until now. The government now recognises that there's a very big problem. And as I say, suicides are just the smallest but most public manifestation of a far greater problem of veterans' mental health. The government is also moving to do its own report. The Ministry of Defence is doing its own report and is also doing a report with Manchester University on the causes of death amongst veterans and serving personnel. The first of those reports should be released by the summer of next year. Those reports will give a slightly more idea as to the scale of the current problem, but they won't actually solve what to do about it. The rifles have moved ahead of that more quickly than that because they realise they've got a severe problem. And what they've understood to be one of the component parts of the problem is this loss of belonging that many soldiers feel if they fought for their country, leave the army, lose their sense of belonging, and then reassess what their war experience was, perhaps combined with PTSD. So last year, following the deaths of three Two Rifles veterans in the space of, I think, about three weeks, Rifles trustees and commanders started investigating what to do. I don't think you can draw any mathematical calculus that allows you to understand the relationship between experience on the battlefield and suicide. It's not a linear thing. Major General Rob Thompson. Rob Thompson was the commander of Two Rifles back in 2009. I think it is a it is definitely a factor that can put people in a very difficult place because of what they experienced and what they saw. And sometimes it's about not having the wrap around, and that's a terribly modern word, but 
we're very privileged as Rifen. Rifen's got a platoon sergeant, he's got a section commander who probably take quite a paternal approach to him. And when that Rifen's outside the regiment, who's his platoon commander? Who writes the letter for him to help him sort out his rent? I mean, that's what you and I would have done as platoon commanders back in the day. And that was just, that's what we did as platoon commanders. And I think taking away that rap makes life really quite hard beyond. And we continue, I think, in the army to do really good work helping people transition. But it's still a big shock when you go into the civilian world. I had a period of time where I suffered from, I mean, I don't know what label you'd, you'd put on it, but I was not myself. Last year, General Patrick Sanders, who's another rifles general, he had been filmed as part of a, you know, an army film, talking about his own reflections on suicide late at night, drinking in the wake of an extremely stressful operational tour. I was depressed, I was low. There were periods of time where I had suicidal thoughts and, um, and it took me a good chunk of time to begin to come back from that on the back of a very violent tour. And as the general addressing his troops, saying it's time to talk, we can all get these feelings, he had then written an open letter to all members of the Rifles last spring, urging riflemen serving and former riflemen to stay in touch with each other and keep an eye out for, for vulnerable members amongst the community. The Rifles came up with this idea. They got a, one of the most experienced officers, Lieutenant Colonel Baz Melia, recently retired from the army a couple of years ago after 37 years service to examine well what can we what can we do about this when a veteran is identified as either approaching a crisis or on the cusp of crisis or actually in a crisis there is a void between that moment and the moment you can get him or her professional help and in that seven days seven weeks the individual is highly likely either to make an attempt on his life or be sectioned or the, the events in his life will spiral out of control and make everything worse. And they came up with Always a Rifleman, which is an outreach programme, which seeks to establish a network of former rifles personnel, veterans who understand the language. They have a bit of mental, they're not mental health specialists, but they have a bit of mental health training and they can react and intervene if necessary if a, if a former rifles soldier is in crisis. So the programme is designed to step in when you identify a crisis, hold that person steady until you can get him into a position where professionals can treat him or her. Others are turning to more unconventional forms of help. For Paul Jacobs, the soldier blinded by an IED in one of the attacks in Sanguine, a boxing charity started by fellow veterans is helping him stay in touch with his brothers in arms. It's called Hard Hitters. Hard Hitters came about by a unique, a former rifleman from Free Rifles, he boxed and I just literally met him in the gym and we started talking and a lovely fella called Luke, Luke Nevin, and he's created this charity for all the hard knocks in life. My name's Luke Nevin. I was in the 3rd Battalion, the Rifles. Joined the army when I was 16 and I left when I was 22. And where did you meet Paul Jacobs? 
I met him in the swimming pool at the gym. I noticed he had a regimental cap badge on, he, on his chest. I just sparked a conversation. I just says, well, what battalion were you in? Was he friendly from the get-go? Was he a bit reserved at the beginning? <laughs> Why? Why? What fucking battalion were you? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the response I got from the odds. <laughs> He's such a humble fella and you just have to meet him. So it's not going there smashing seven bells out of each other, but it's going in there with veterans, all ailments. It's about who we are today and where we're going tomorrow. And we're helping each other and back with a community that we understand. In speaking to so many people who've been affected by PTSD, you know, it's quite clear that there are failures in the system. Also, it feels like we as a society are failing to do something about such a terrible problem. In Britain, I mean, it does seem to be a national pastime. We, we talk about the legacy of the First and Second World Wars all the time. Is it harder for us to know how to talk about Afghanistan? Because, you know, A, most of us didn't really experience it firsthand. Also, they were controversial wars and ultimately ended in, in failure, in loss. Is, is that part of the problem? Have we just not figured out a narrative around this or how to talk about Afghanistan? Britain does not know how to tell the Afghan story to itself. I totally understand the iconic value of the poppy and its historical origins in the First World War, but we've got thousands and thousands of still comparatively young men and women who served in Afghanistan and served in Iraq, and yet they're very much given second place, really, in, in our national memory of war, of suffering, and of loss. So we really haven't learned properly to engage with our most contemporary war experiences. On the positive side, there is by and large a very warm reaction from British society towards its veteran troops. It's not like, you know, American society, for example, rejected returning Vietnam veterans in the 60s and early 70s. But nevertheless, we don't really know where we are in telling ourselves what happened in Afghanistan as a society yet. We're still very focused on, I don't know, stories about rescuing people we left behind or what the Taliban are doing now, rather than looking at, well, hang on, what happened to the thousands of soldiers we sent there? What went on there? And what exactly are the problems that those soldiers are facing now, the other side of the war being lost? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times foreign correspondent, Anthony Lloyd. You can find all of Anthony's remarkable reporting, including his work from Afghanistan, at thetimes.co.uk. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If anything we've discussed today has triggered any memories or affected you in any way, then please do take a look at the episode description wherever you downloaded this podcast. We've included a list 
of charities and helplines who will be able to provide support. And if you thought these podcasts were helpful in understanding an incredibly important issue, then please do leave a review. Hopefully, it'll encourage others to listen. Thank you. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.